I don't know how you found us, but we're grateful that you're here. Uh, yeah, welcome to the podcast. Um, I think we have a bunch of things to say by way of introduction. Um, first of all, introduce ourselves. My name is Joe Bookman. Uh, I'm Chad Volrath. This is a podcast about billionaires, right? Uh, yeah, it is about billionaires. We're two media studies professors setting out to make a podcast, not how to become a billionaire. And not because we like billionaires, not because we think billionaires are good, uh, but because billionaires are important. They're like white hot nodes of wealth and power that do a lot to structure our world in terms of the infrastructures that are available to us in daily life. So I don't know if you're like us, but you know, you're living your life, you're dealing with the things that you need to deal with. You are surrounded by materials and goods that come from somewhere. And every once in a while you have flickering ideas about where did that come from or how did this object enter into my life? The chances are 97% of those objects that you come into contact with and may or may not think about ultimately came from some billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> all all things can be traced back to billionaire enterprises at this moment of economic history, just by virtue of the fact that wealth has become so unbelievably consolidated across the globe. Yeah. Is that an overstatement? I think that's uh, basically No, right. I think that's right. And, and I mean, I would say that like, there are some more obvious ways in which uh, this is true. For instance, like the number of products that you buy from Amazon or Walmart or Target or whatever, like, uh, you know, there, there are pretty clear ways in which uh, the goods that we consume are filtered through uh, uh, billionaire networks. But um, uh, we're more interested in the less obvious ways uh, that billionaires talk touch our daily lives. Because we think that their influence on our daily lives is profound. And we often don't think about how a, ver a, a small number of people are, are, are actively affecting the way that we live. Yeah. And uh, the other thing is like most of them are anonymous, right? Like the Walton family and Jeff Bezos, people can look up news articles about them. But when the, the billionaires that we're more interested in talking about are the ones who, when you Google their names, very little comes up. Like there are a number of billionaires that we've looked at already. Uh, when you Google them, uh, you know, there's less information about them out there than there is about Which us. Which seems right? weird. They're, 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 it's it's, it's very weird. somehow, but <laughs> it's, very, it's not an accident. So another way of talking about this is both of us have research interests that center on uh, theories of infrastructure. And bi billionaires, in a sense, con control infrastructure across the planet. And this is sort of, I think, what interests us intellectually about the project. I think as much as anything else, it just seems like a obvious thing to take a look at because it's so powerful. Um, and these, these people who control uh, so, so much of what happens on this planet are sort of hiding in plain sight. So each episode, we are going to randomly pick two new billionaires to discuss for the following episode. And we're going to research these people and try to figure out what their specific influence has been on some aspect of global industry. Our hope is that by exploring the activities of these different very powerful people, we'll sharpen our understanding of, of how a very small number of human beings exert influence over the rest of the planet. So this week, the two billionaires that we selected to talk about are Clemmy Spangler and Kunio Busajima. 
Uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about them later. Uh, but before we got started, we wanted to tell you that our shows are, uh, at least as of now, going to be broken up into three segments. Uh, first of all, uh, we're going to talk about Billionaires in the News, uh, which is a current events segment. And then we're each going to present a billionaire uh, to you who, as we said, we selected randomly Um you know, like we said, this is our first episode, so we hope that you bear with us and there might be some hiccups and uh, things might change uh, a little bit as we move along. Uh, but uh, I think that's all we have to say for the intro. So let's jump right into Billionaires in the News. Billionaires in the News. Uh, I think that this week there is really no contest. Uh, Elon Musk takes takes the uh, winner's circle what's the what's the phrase what's the saying i'm looking for the whenever the olympians stand on the like one and two and three the podium the podium yeah he's on the podium this week uh maybe we should have a phrase for that in uh in the who's on the podium this week you know that kind of thing okay yeah yeah i like that uh elon musk is definitely on the podium elon musk is on the podium uh he's america's uh, special space boy he uh had a rough week uh, he tried weed with Joe Rogan. I don't know if you heard about that. I well, yeah, uh, I, I heard that he was like d- he did it on Facetime or something, or he did it publicly on Facebook. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, Joe Joe Rogan um, uh, uh, like video casts his you know his podcast, so they're 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 streaming uh, video as well, and so there's uh, there's some really great video of. Uh, Elon Musk trying to trying to smoke a blunt, and uh, he, he's acting like uh, a blunt, a, a blunt. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, and it, it's really bad. Um, like it's sort of like um, like it's it, like if um, I don't know. It's like it, like I I was thinking of like Steve Carell's character in the Forty Year Old Virgin, or like. Or, or somebody who, um, you know, do you, so like the, the scenes from that, like the, the, the main joke, I think, in the 40 year old version was like he was always trying to pretend like he had experienced things that he hadn't because he couldn't let on that he was a virgin. Right? And so, like, right. that's yeah. what Elon Musk is doing with the blunt. He, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, uh, I've had this before. You know, he's, uh, uh, and he, he takes it and he smokes <laughs> it. And he, like, it's, it, it's the most, like, Like you could not design a better uh, sort of like parody of someone pretending uh, to be a weed expert who has never smoked weed (laughs) before. Is is Elon Musk like trying to be cool for Joe Rogan? Is he like trying to impress Joe Rogan? That's, that is that's the what's most happening. Fucking that's what's happening. Shit. Yeah, because you're like a billionaire who builds spaceships, and and you still uh, have <laughs> such little like you know uh, self confidence that you have to impress fucking Joe Rogan. Um, anyway, so like he takes a puff on it and like and just doesn't inhale it at all. It's, it's, it's like incredibly funny watching him uh, do that. It actually, you know, like I, I hate Elon Musk. And I think he's a scumbag, uh, but like. It actually made me feel a little bit bad for him. He was getting so he was getting dragged so hard online uh, because it was so ridiculous. But I didn't feel bad for him for very long uh, because I remembered what led up to this, uh, which is a long uh, period uh, over the last couple of months. Uh, Elon Musk uh, being. Uh, 
completely insane online. Like so, he's he, I don't I don't. It seems like he has a job and he uh, is very busy. He did a big New York Times uh, uh, interview where he was you know talking about being really stressed out and uh, and you know I think he cried or something. I couldn't read it. I don't care about him that much. Uh, but like, oh, he's so busy. He seems to spend about like 10 to 12 hours a day online um, uh, doing ridiculous things. And so I think like this this story arc with him started uh, with the Thai cave boys, uh, the little, the soccer team who was uh, trapped in the cave in Thailand. Right. And yeah. he came up with the idea yeah. to build a mini sub. Uh, and, uh, and said, Oh, right. I remember that. And everybody yeah. was like, that's the stupidest idea ever. Elon Musk. That's right. Why would you ever do that? And, and one person specifically, uh, said it was a stupid idea. And that was the guy who, uh, ended up, uh, contributing a lot to rescuing the boys. And, uh, after Elon, after he called, uh, Musk's idea stupid, uh, Musk, uh, got on Twitter and called the guy a pedo, which is short for pedophile in case, uh, you're not, uh, you know, wrapped up in right wing fringe weirdness. Uh, uh, so he, and he did this, like he did it a couple of times and it was really weird and there didn't seem to be any like, uh, news precedent for him saying this. It's not like this guy had some sort of reputation that preceded him or like it just seemed to come out of nowhere. And so I call this guy a pedo. Uh, people started freaking out online. Then he like does all this stuff. I'm super stressed out and whatever. And then he does the New York Times interview. Uh, and then like uh, I think he, he may have created some like public sympathy for himself. Uh, and then like immediately after that interview, he gets back online and starts calling guy pedo again. Then starts emailing BuzzFeed with like subject lines like uh, um, uh, off the record and on background, which like that's not how it works in journalism. You don't just tell a reporter that you're off the record and and then you're off the record, right? right? It has to be a mutual agreement. Uh, and so BuzzFeed turned around and published his emails where he calls the guy a pedo again, calls him a child rapist and says that he's like looked into his background. Uh, and then uh, and then it all sort of ended with him um, uh, failing to smoke weed on Joe Rogan's podcast, which is I, like, it's just, it's so ridiculous. It's so stupid. Uh, and, uh, I don't, yeah. I mean, I like it's, it's, it's a little, and oh yeah. I mean, the upshot of it is the stock is tanking. It's down like 10% over the last few days. Uh, a bunch of people are quitting, um, his, uh, quitting Tesla and quitting yeah, his other businesses. That. Yeah. He's, um, I don't know. I mean, I, like, so, like, you know, he had a bad, he's had a bad couple of months. Uh, I think that, like, I, I think the thing to watch with Elon Musk is, like, with these, uh, like, pedophilia accusations are a really kind of interesting thing right now, right? Like, that, that ever since Pizzagate, the, like, online right-wing uh, fever swamp fringe has been really into accusing everybody that they don't like of pedophilia uh and the fact that like elon musk is doing this now like i, I some like some 
I'm sure that like uh, like I don't know maybe I would say a good third of billionaires are probably QAnon people <laughs> like that that because um, I think that most of them are sort of uh, insane and they like you know like Robert Mercer or something he's definitely right like a believer in QAnon. You think one third of all billionaires is like far out conspiracy fringe? Yeah, yeah. I think I think that. Um, uh, craziness and brain worms like runs really deep in the billionaire community. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, that's a hypothesis. We'll test it out over the course of this show. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're much more sane than okay. they seem to me. But um, but I, I, I think I might be willing to put money on Elon Musk being the first billionaire to publicly endorse QAnon or some similar uh, insane conspiracy theory like so you're Elon predicting is, that he will do that he seems to be yeah, moving in that direction or something like it i mean he he doesn't seem to be like particularly right wing i mean it's not really his thing although he does have like every silicon valley guy he does have like libertarian fantasies but right i i, I think as far as like you know, I, I I don't think he's, you know, really involved in the world of Pizzagate. I'm just saying, like, the door is open now, right? Like, now that both him and, um, you know, like uh, uh, Mike Cernovich or something are uh, accusing people of, of pedophilia. Like, at some point, they'll realize that they have more in common uh, than they have that's <laughs> different, right? And then, I don't know. We'll see. That's, I'm just saying, I'm just throwing it out there that I predict at some point... Uh, either Elon Musk or some other, you know, billionaire like him is going to uh, uh, publicly jump on the the uh, right wing uh, QAnon conspiracy theory. Okay, well, we'll discourse. We'll, we'll track that theory. We'll see what happens. Today, uh, we are talking about Clemmy Dixon Spangler, uh, the gypsum king of the United States. Uh, Maybe I'll start with a question. Joe, where are you right now? I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, inside my home. And uh, is your home made of drywall? You know, there's probably some drywall up in here. (laughs) 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 I'm not... You know, I know that there's some walls that are that like, like old wood paneling that that's not drywall, but I mean, there's gotta be some drywall, right? Uh, yeah. Your house is all drywall. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> when was it built? 1954. Yeah. It's drywall. But I mean, um, some of it is, uh, we don't need to get into a, you know, a, a semantic argument, <laughs> but some of it, is, I know, cause I just painted it. Some of it isn't. But some of it is. I'm sure. Well, what is it? Is it wood? Yeah, some of it's wood. Oh, weird. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's unusual. Oh, because you live in that strange sort of neighborhood with like the Dutch influence <laughs> architecture or something, right? This is a little bit too much information for our audience, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to dox you. No, it's uh, good. The episode. No, it's fine. Um, yeah. But there's drywall right. near me. Yeah. I mean, I get what you're trying to do. Yeah, so uh, you know we're and there's drywall surrounding me too. So we're we're surrounded by materials that likely passed through uh, Clemmy Dixon Spangler's uh, corporation. There is not a lot of public information on Clemmy Spangler. Uh, 
all uh, you know, like, and this really goes for most of the billionaires that we're going to talk about. And and I think that you're going to probably talk about that with your guy later. You were mentioning it earlier when we were talking off the show. Um, uh, but like most of the information on Clemmy Spangler comes from obituaries because uh, he recently died. Um, uh, and uh, other than that, there's really not much. Um, uh, I think, you know, I think part of that is because a lot of billionaires go out of the way to keep uh, go out of their way to keep their names out of the news. Now, this um, is like we should say this is a, like a suspicion that we have. But it's it's, it's yeah, been borne out in our preliminary research. <laughs> yeah, I would say that it's a pretty strong hypothesis. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, and, and it's not only that. It's not. I think it's not only that they're trying to keep themselves out in the news, but also that like a lot of them are just kind of unremarkable people. They're just sort of people who've gotten like regular people who've either gotten lucky or were born into a particularly privileged <laughs> situation. I think like this um, maybe like to. To jump in, this is like the ultimate myth bust that I think that we want the show to articulate. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. billionaires are not superheroes. They might have one special skill, but a lot of people have one special skill, you know? Yeah. And a lot of them don't have any skills. Uh, you know, again, in preliminary research, one of the things that we found almost immediately is that a pretty, pretty sizable portion of them have either inherited their fortunes or inherited a fortune and built that into uh, an even larger fortune. Uh, and that goes for Clemmy Spengler uh, as well. Um, if you have heard of him, uh, you might have heard of him uh, because he was president of the University of North Carolina Systems for a while. Tar Heels represent. I'm from Chapel Hill anyway. Yeah. Um, and uh, he... Uh, he was actually not too bad uh, as a uh, as a, a president of the university. Um, he uh, he did a few things uh, that were relatively uh, uh, good, I guess. Um, he to give him his due respect, uh, he fought for college affordability pretty hard. He was uh, a huge advocate for public schools. And uh, when he was uh, UNC's president, he actually fought for uh, increased funding to historically black colleges and universities. Uh, and he was uh, pretty harshly criticized for that and kind of stood up to the, the criticism uh, from what I read about him. Of course, these are obituaries. And so uh, they're going to be sort of singing his praises because he recently died. So sure. I don't know, you know to what degree that's true. And there's not a lot of information out there. Uh, and I'm not going to, you know, uh, call up the university and ask them about it. But um, uh, otherwise there's, there's like really little information about his life as a business person. Uh, he went to private school, then he went to UNC and Harvard business. Uh, as soon as he got out, he started CD Spangler construction company and golden Eagle industries, uh, with startup capital from his father who was already rich from construction. Uh, and that's sort of, that's sort of it as far as his Biography. So goes. it's a rich um, get richer template bio. Yes. Yeah. Which seems really, really common. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of like either you invent something uh, and get really lucky that it catches on or you inherit your fortune. Those are like the two most common ways that we're coming across that uh, billionaires <laughs> get rich. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, so like I, I think that we're going to run into this issue a lot 
uh, when we're talking about billionaires, which is that as people, they're not particularly interesting, or at least not that interesting to us. It is a, it is an intellectual challenge. Like, how do you make billionaires interesting? <laughs> you know, we're, we're finding that that's a, that's a difficult challenge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and to some degree, it's compounded by the fact that they seem to go out of their way to make themselves uninteresting so that people don't start sniffing around uh, what they're doing. Did you just hit your microphone with a bat? I did. I'm wearing my glasses and uh, they, they hit the little um, screen. The the That's going to make the final cut. I like it. <laughs> um, so uh, to transition, I think gypsum is probably something that's more interesting to talk about than Spengler himself. Yeah, let's uh, talk you know, about gypsum. Yeah, so we we talked a little bit about uh, what like how it's uh, or where it comes from. Uh, it's kind of strip mined. Uh, they you know if you know what strip mining is, it's not something where they dig the deep mines like with coal. I guess they strip mine coal sometimes too. But gypsum is sort of like an on the surface type of thing. Uh, they use it for a bunch of stuff. Uh, chalkboard chalk is made out of it. Here's a question. Before you started yeah. doing research on this, did you have any idea what gypsum was? Uh, yeah. I mean, I knew it had something to do with plaster. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess it turns out that plaster can be made out of a whole bunch of stuff um, or, you know, various. There are different kinds of plaster. Uh, but when it comes to drywall, uh, gypsum is the standard. I still don't know, like, the difference between, say, gypsum and talc, right? Like, talc is also a white, powdery, chalky sort of thing. Um, and I maybe it's just because they sound the same, but I thought talc and chalk were related in some way, but I guess they're not. Uh, maybe talc is just a word for powdered gypsum. So you I don't, don't know the difference between talc and gypsum? Uh, I don't. In fact, it just occurred to me right now so um, what we, we how can we begin to posture as experts on this subject <laughs> we well, you know we're not chemists yeah. you know, I, I don't know if I'm gonna, or <laughs> geologists or whatever i don't even know who study you know uh, yeah. uh but um yeah okay so like let me talk a little bit about the there's two things that gypsum was really important for in history and one is fertilizer and the other one's drywall uh it really isn't used in fertilizer anymore uh, but it was really, really important in the 18th and early 19th centuries as uh, uh, something that people put on crops uh, in the United States, especially wheat, uh, assumedly for the calcium. Uh, and, and at that time, it was mostly mined in Nova Scotia. And like, and there was huge demand for it. And you had this sort of like rapidly uh, expanding population a relatively rapidly expanding population, pushing westward, uh, moving into the prairies, growing more wheat, you know, uh, uh, building the uh, agricultural breadbasket of the United States. And gypsum was kind of an integral ingredient in doing that. Hmm. And, uh, and so it was in pretty high demand and it was mostly coming from Canada. But at this time, uh, the uh, there were you know trade disputes like uh, international trade disputes between the United States and Canada, and uh, can you remind me again what what time period are we in right now? So I'm going to be talking about the Plaster War of 1820, uh, and. Uh, it, it is uh, it, it's not much of a war uh, in the sense that, uh, I, that I don't even think there were actually any guns involved or uh, any deaths or anything like that. It, it, there were a lot of rocks. How does this so, parallel with the rise of the fossil fuel economy? 
Uh, that's a great question. I mean, you know, the fossil fuel economy is going to be a little bit later. Um, uh, at least the uh, what we associate with, um, you know, like the rise of internal combustion engines and uh, the need uh, to drill scale. oil wells and all of that. So gypsum predate right. the gypsum and large economy. scale coal burning that makes electricity. I mean, you're talking like turn of the 20th century, a, a little bit into the 20th century. Uh, so this is this is earlier. This is you know basically um, uh, a pre-wired world mm-hmm. uh, by a, a pretty sizable margin. And uh, so like the inter- like the interesting thing about the plaster war is that it it has to do. I mean, it is it actually actually is related to what you were just bringing up. It has to do with the spread of the sort of ideology of free market capitalism, uh, and, and maybe an early version or an early uh, instance of a kind of impulse toward globalization uh, of markets, uh, because the argument was uh, that uh, people who were mining plaster and then selling it uh, should be free to sell it wherever they wanted. Uh, and free from, I guess, the uh, imposition of taxes uh, of the um, uh, the provincial government in Canada, and uh, like the the fight was sort of a. I mean, I was reading a bit, and so, somebody wrote a dissertation on this called "The Rogues of Quadi" uh, about uh, gypsum smuggling between the U.S. and Canada in the 19th century, and he was making the argument that like, it, that, like this was an important moment, at least in this area, uh, for the, a kind of injection of uh, free market capitalist ideology into uh, Canadian culture. Uh, that, at that time, uh, capitalist uh, behavior was sort of more associated or free markets were more associated with the United so States. So what did the conflict look like? Okay. Well, the conflict it was it was not that much of a conflict. Uh, uh, so what would happen was, uh, I guess you know, in the dead of night, uh, these people would load up boats with uh, plaster in New Brunswick to sail it down to Maine, and uh, or Nova Scotia to send it down to Maine, and uh, uh, the you know the the provincial uh, police would get in their boats and come after them. And uh, the the miners slash smugglers uh, would like throw rocks at the police boats um, <laughs> uh, who were coming after them. No guns, and, um, just rocks. I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, there, at least in what I read, there were no guns, no deaths. It was uh, it was mainly uh, rock throwing and and really, you know, sort of like sabotage and you know maybe vandalism and that sort of thing. Like, okay. um, uh, you know, and. Uh, um, I, I wanted to read like a just a really small quote from the uh, the dissertation that I thought was interesting. Yeah. So yeah, uh, go for it. This is a passage from the Rogues of Quadi. Uh, he writes, "Quote: In some ways, this struggle marked New Brunswick's departure from pre-capitalist economics into capitalism. The struggle to stop the plaster trade was more than an economic or political contest. It was also closely related to the loyalist identity of the province." Uh, More than one observer noted that the smugglers involved in the plaster trade introduced American ideas of free trade and democracy into the province. So, you know, so these like you could, you know, of course, this isn't the only sort of uh, um, 
instance of cultural exchange between the United States and Canada, um, but it was a place where, right, like where the, uh, the conflicting ideologies between kind of uh, uh, a monarchy and capitalism came into uh, direct conflict. And uh, and so that was interesting. Um, and it, like uh, it's a, a place where sort of capitalism spreads its influence so that then this gypsum can come into the United States and be used as fertilizer uh, to uh, further uh, feed the nation and, and expand the population hmm. and then uh, move into new areas and colonize new areas, right? And this sort of manifest destiny of this kind of democratic capitalist society is, is also wrapped up in uh, the gypsum trade. So I, I thought that was interesting. Um, but it, what's more interesting, I think, is, is what most people would associate with gypsum, which is the invention of drywall. And uh, this happened uh, like around World War. Well, it, it happened in 1916. Actually, there's a date for the invention of wallboard hmm. uh, uh, that later in 1925, I guess, became known as drywall. Um, but uh, it was actually the U.S. Gypsum Corp. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, U.S. Gypsum Corporation invented it in 1916, and then Spengler's company, which he didn't acquire until like the 1970s, it was much much later before he was even involved with National Gypsum. But they invented uh, a sort of improved process for making drywall that uh, in 1925. So here's just that a random question. Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but uh, no, no, the. Uh, does does the initial in, invention of drywall have anything to do with World War One? It being in the middle of that, or too difficult that's a, to say. That's a good question. Uh, I I don't know. I mean, um, that's okay. I was just curious, just because it's a ripe date, nineteen sixty. Yeah, it, it is. I my guess though is that it has more to do uh, with uh, with the this sort of uh, golden age uh, or the advent of industrial technology, right? Mm -hmm. Like that uh, um, it become, you know, the, the factory form, right? Sort of takes off at around the turn of the 20th century, very shortly after we have, you know, Ford and the assembly line and, and, right. and interchangeable parts and all of this stuff, right? right? right. Um, so, uh, you know, it, 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 it I'm not sure to what degree it's like related to, to World War One. I. Um, I think most people associate it with uh, America after World War II, uh, because when you think drywall, you think of uh, the sort of cubicle design of modern buildings. Um, and uh, uh, there's, I mean, there's a good reason for this, right? Like, I, I mean, for for, the, for people who haven't really thought about this before, maybe you've just you know are unaware, but before drywall, if you wanted to make walls, you had to do a kind of plaster and lathe thing, which means you put up wood slats and then you mix up a liquid plaster. It, it used to take a lot longer to make a wall, right? Like you and I could build a wall in uh, – we could go to Home Depot and get the materials we needed to build uh, a wall – uh, and build that wall in like an hour, right? Like you can uh, not, you can buy, you know, prefabricated two by four um, uh, frames and then you just nail or screw drywall to it and you're done. Um, whereas you used to have to like build everything from scratch and the, and this traditional plaster that's like a liquid and you're sort of uh, uh, troweling it on, you're, you're painting it on more or less, smearing it on, 
uh, could deal with curves and unusual shapes and, and all of that stuff because it's just like a goop, right? And so whatever shape you make, uh, you can put plaster on top of it. Um, so that's like why when you go into older homes, there might be like curves in the, in the ceiling on the, above the staircase mm. or, or things like mm-hmm. that. But there aren't today. They're all angular mm. uh, because people make walls out of a prefab drywall, which is already dry when you get it. Um, and uh, it's way, way faster, right? Like more than 10 times faster than doing plaster. It's also lighter. It's cheaper. Uh, it's more resilient. Uh, if somebody punches a hole in your drywall, you can replace it in a matter of minutes, right? Like it's, it's, a, it's a highly superior building material. Hmm. And everybody realized that immediately, right? Like as soon as they invented drywall, you see a, a massive and global change in the way that architecture works, right? So when you think of modernist architecture, uh, uh, what you generally think of is geometric shapes, uh, a lot of cubes, right? I, I actually looked up a, a Wikipedia type entry on modernist architecture, which has a bullet pointed list of the characteristics of modernist architecture. And I'll just read some of them to you, right? Okay. Components positioned at 90 degrees to each other and an emphasis on horizontal and vertical lines. The use of reinforced concrete and steel, following the machine aesthetic in the use of materials produced by industrial processes, rectangular, cylindrical, and cubic shapes, a lack of ornament or moldings, open floor plans, and white or cream facades. Uh, Like... You know, the white or cream facades comes from this kind of like modernist impulse to not hide the materials that uh, buildings are made out of. Sure. Like, it, so like all of these, all of those things that are uh, so-called aesthetic choices of modernist architecture follow from this new material being introduced into uh, building, right? Like it was so much cheaper and so much better. You really didn't have any other choice. And so the aesthetic impulse of of modernist architecture is really less of a choice and more of a forced position uh, that comes from this superior material being introduced mm-hmm. into the market. And uh, if you want a like example of this, the the sort of modernist style uh, developed into a, a whole bunch of different strains all over everywhere i mean globally all over the united states all over europe canada etc there are all kinds of different modernisms uh but one of them was the the international style uh that people associate with le, Cambor- uh, le corbusier and uh, van der rohe um which uh, if you've ever looked at that stuff uh, there's a lot of really big cubes uh and the, hmm. like, the best example of it uh i think is like the original world trade centers right just these huge boxes i mean most sort of um, uh, skyscrapers that were, um, you know, built later on uh, so, have this. So this is the, aesthetic. can I jump the gun and yep. say like there are no skyscrapers without gypsum or as we know them? Uh, you know, I thought about that and uh, I think that is correct. Hmm. Um, uh, now, like there are some skyscrapers that were built like around that time, like the Empire State Building. Um, what, what's used in the empire state building? I mean, that was 1920s, right? Um, let me actually Google that. It was completed in 1931 and it did use drywall. Hmm. Um, uh, but it, you know, it's not in, it's not really, you know, the reason I was balking at that is cause it's not really, uh, an exemplar of the modernist style, sure. uh, in the same way. Um, 
but you know, could you build a skyscraper uh, without drywall? Is a great question. Um, and uh, my guess is uh, it would be a giant pain in the ass and take a really, really long time. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, I don't know. Um, so like, you know, okay. So like the, the idea here is that the advent of this new technology really steers how people start building buildings, like everything from the single family home, if you think about Frank Lloyd Wright to, uh, to skyscrapers, right. And everything like the sizes and proximity of rooms in family homes and workplaces, uh, hospitals, every institution sort of circumscribes relationships between people, uh, parents and children, workers and bosses, producers and consumers. And like, uh, uh, every, like, you know, and this isn't anything that's like really that unusual to notice, right? Like that, uh, um, there's in fact, um, a, you know, a, 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 a lot of people who sort of point out the, architectural uniformity of modernity in the 20th century, right? And uh, and it's something that um, has been remarked upon, critiqued, noticed, right? Like, uh, and we still sort of like live in those, those kinds of dwelling spaces. Um, but your point is and, this uh, has something very specific to do with gypsum that's kind of interesting to think about. It does. I mean, you know, like I mean, gypsum is easy to mine and it's cheap and they found a way to make really cheap and light uh, boards out of it that you could make walls from. And uh, and soon, uh, soon after it was invented, every structure integrated it. And like the aesthetic character of the world that we occupy. Mm-hmm. And it, it, that's interesting to me. And, and it's interesting that like how we how we sort of understand the critique of this uniformity, right? Like, cause there's a couple of different ways you can look at it. And, and the, the thing that I think would probably jump into a lot of people's heads is uh, one of the most uh, well-known uh, critiques of the drywall aesthetic, which is Melvina Reynolds' uh, Little Boxes. Should we play it? I, Should we play it? For yeah, you? I thought we, in case you haven't heard it, I'd play like a minute of the song and, uh, and think about it in terms of a critique of the aesthetic character of modern life. Little boxes on the hilltop. Little boxes made of ticky-tacky. Little boxes on the hilltop. Little boxes all the There's a pink one and a green one. And a blue one and a yellow one. And they're all made out of ticky-tacky. Man, there's something just 
devastating about that. I haven't heard that in years. Yeah. But listening to it in this context or not, just irregardless of context, that like is the ultimate critique of modernity. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, there's something about her voice to it. Like it's one of those songs that makes me happy and sad at the same time. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's really, it's really affecting. Yeah. Uh, It's deeply affecting. That's a great, yeah, that's great. So like, okay. So I think I completely agree with what you just said that like, it's an incredibly sophisticated critique of modernity in a really interesting way. But I, I'd like to, you know, distinguish it from other kinds of critiques, right? Because if you think of, say, 1984 or Brave New World, you have also these highly conformist uh, uh, social uh, uh, milieus, right? Like uh, where, but the difference is that the, in, this, in, in those cases, there's a powerful state actor imposing conformity on people. And it happens differently in 1984 and Brave New World. Uh, uh, but it, it, you, you can't say that it's not intentional and uh, ideological in, uh, in an intentional way, right? But in, in Reynolds' song, it's unclear, right? It's ambiguous. And it might just be that the infrastructural like uniformity that comes from things like following the profit motive just kind of like spits out or you know automatically produces social conformity right so there's no one in power who necessarily is is directly imposing this conformity or even wants this conformity uh there's no one uh uh, uh making it happen forcefully uh, or even like in Brave New World through some sort of like sophisticated and propagandistic ideological control or whatever. It's just like a byproduct of larger economic and material flows. And and so like, I think, her, I mean, you know, obviously she's in this tradition, it's kind of like Pete Seeger tradition, but like the, her song is much more Marxist in its interpretation of architecture than say like Orwell and Huxley are in their books. Yeah. Like uh, yeah. it's like material relations are determining consciousness at least possibly like ambiguously um and uh and she you know like it seems like she's handing agency over to things and structures more than hap- often happens in in sort of like critique of of in, modernity in pop like, music yeah. or folk music certainly <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's a, it's it's really yeah good. um that's amazing so that's it Clemmy Dixon Spangler he's dead uh, but his his empire lives on in the form of our walls. So we're back and we're going to talk about our second billionaire for today, Kunio Busajima, born April 1925. Die. Ah, interesting. The year uh, National Gypsum uh, invented the improved process for producing drywall. You're kidding. <laughs> this is, yeah, I think this, we went over this that is, in the last This is a beginning of a conspiracy theory. <laughs> <laughs> uh, died October 22nd, 2016. Uh, Japanese billionaire and... Uh, Oh, wait a minute. I'm already like reading what I'm supposed to be explaining. So this is the Wikipedia entry for this guy. 
who is one of the 10, was one of the 10 richest people in Japan. And I'm just going to begin by reading the entirety of his Wikipedia entry. Kuniya Busajima was a Japanese billionaire businessman and the founder and chairman of Sankyo, one of the three major pachinko machine manufacturers in Japan. According to Forbes, in January 15, he had an estimated net worth of $4.2 billion. He died in 2016 at the age of 91. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. In the United States, if you Google Kuniya Busajima, that's his Wikipedia entry. Which, to me, is just kind of absurd. The fact that he is worth $4 billion and his his life impacted, I, I don't know how many thousands or millions of people in um, really important ways. You get like five sentences <laughs> to explain his legacy. And I think this just speaks to our, our, our general argument. Billionaires tend to be more anonymous than they should be, given the amount of power that they wield across the planet. Yeah, I think that's planet. a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, like... My- Puzzlingly anonymous. Yeah, puzzling. <laughs> like I, shockingly little information. I work at a tiny liberal arts college. There's like 1,200 kids. Like my bio on my department webpage is like about right. this long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a good comparison. You know, right? It's like uh, it doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but maybe it does make sense <laughs> as, as we'll continue to try to puzzle out. So, what's the deal with this guy? Um, you know, Pachinko. Pachinko. To, maybe I'll start oh, by yeah. talking about what Pachinko is. Um, yeah. do, I don't I don't know that you had any idea of what this was before we started talking I, about. It. Did you? I do not, yeah. and I mean, uh. It's gambling. Yeah. Um, and is it numbers? Are there numbers involved? Not really. You can so you can go on YouTube and go and and there are some like videos that will explain it to you. But basically, it's a super popular form of like pinball slash slot machine gambling uh, in Japan. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, it's obvious. If I could win money playing pinball. <laughs> yeah, that's well, basically my fantasy. Well, move to Japan and start a new life. I mean, uh, a lot of people love this as I'll continue to talk about. It's a a game where it's a little difficult to describe. We'll post on our Facebook or whatever, uh, some links to videos that explain this, but you, you basically purchase these little metal balls that you put into the machine and you play pinball and it bounces around in the machine and you try to get it to get trapped by... Do you get... Like, do you get a bucket of balls? Yeah, sort of. You get like a little tray of balls or something. I mean, I've never played, so there's probably different like ball receptacles. Um, I think that the ball bearing is one of the most pleasing objects that human beings have ever created. Like the steel. Yeah. Well, the whole this whole industry relies sort of heavily on the existence of the ball bearing. It wouldn't work (laughs) without it. And yeah, I mean, what, what what is there to say? You buy these balls, you put them in the machine, you try to win the pinball game. And if you do, it's like winning the slot machine. It like kicks out a bunch more balls 
that mm. that you can then trade in for prizes or uh, I think more often than not uh, people wind up trading them in for in for money in this sort of quasi legal trade where they take them away from the pachinko business and they go and trade them in these off street trade in centers or counters or windows or something. So you can make money off what of it, it in, in other words. So, okay. So let me get this straight. You, you buy some pachinko balls and then you uh, play the game and let's say you win a bunch and then you can go to a different place mm-hmm. and in a in a quasi legal way, get money. Yeah, for them. Yeah, it's like a legal workaround. So you then you can't. What do the people that you like give you money do with the balls? <laughs> do they just go get the prize? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand how it all works. But yeah, no, no. Here, no. I do actually know the answer to that question. So you trade the balls in back in at your pachinko arcade. You, they'll give you some kind of token. Uh, like prize that then becomes a kind of currency that you can trade in for real money at these uh, like pachinko money trade in window centers, whatever they are. Mm. So you're not, that's how the legal workaround happens. I mean, it's sort of maybe not all that oh, interesting, okay. you, but it. it's like one step removed, you know? Um, sort of like it's it's like having a chip window where you cash in your chips, but officially it's a different business yeah. uh, to separate it. So okay. I think that's yeah. right. And so gambling's illegal in Japan, but this operates as... Uh, a quote special business that is the biggest business ever, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> and these legal workarounds have allowed them to 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 operate and to flourish. So, so it's big business. It's super big business. So according to one Business Insider article, Japanese citizens collectively spend two hundred billion dollars a year on pachinko, wow. which is thirty times the annual gambling revenue of Los. Vegas. That seems impossible. Double Japan's export car industry. <laughs> what? <laughs> and more than New Zealand's entire GDP. <laughs> so, like, you take- so you're saying that people seem to enjoy Pachinko. <laughs> yes, man. Yeah. Like New Zealand. New Zealand's a magical place with all kinds of wonderful things to offer. But that entire island can't compete with this one game. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's so, kind of astounding when you put it. Buzajima <laughs> <laughs> like, founded this company in the 60s, and today the company operates through a few different segments. One builds and sells machines and parts for the ma- pachinko machines. Another segment is called the ball bearing supply systems segment, and it provides uh, pachinko parlors with like ball feeders and card system equipment. Uh, and the final segment uh, has holdings in mobile content and real estate and golf clubs and uh, molding products. So everything is related to tiny spheres. And stuff. <laughs> that's, an, <laughs> that's an interesting theory. Maybe Musajima <laughs> was obsessed with tiny spheres. <laughs> I don't know. Real estate, maybe. That doesn't quite fit into that. 
I like I like the theory though. Um, <laughs> we do know that uh, Busajima is uh, an avid golfer and a supporter of golfing. And we've talked previously how this a supporter of golfing, yeah. huh? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, he's <laughs> <laughs> he supports golf. <laughs> uh, I, I just want to go on record and say that I hate golfers <laughs> and golf. Maybe we should uh, start golfing together. <laughs> that could be. A, I, I like, know. I, I I won't. Do no, that. we could do it. It would be good, like a, a YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> we could do it. What well, I'm going to talk to you. On I don't. I don't want to do it. I mean, I'm sure we could do it. It's not hard. I know to go to a golf course, but it would be fun to do to golf with someone who just hates everything about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want to participate. <laughs> um. Okay. So. Like, how did this dude make all of this money? It's, it's, I mean, obviously people are just gamblers at heart and he found a legal way to allow gambling to happen, um, in Japan. But it's also worth noting that the machines are really complicated technical devices and 300 separate patents are required to protect the intellectual property of all the components contained in these machines. So uh, Pachinko incorporates plasma and liquid crystal display panel technologies. So they're like high tech, like slot machines are these days. Yeah, they're pretty high tech. There's there's actually an interesting there's an interesting history that is like uh, dates back to like the 1930s. That's um, much less tech techie. Um, but, um, if you go into a parlor today, you're going to be dealing with uh, these machines that have encryption technology, holography, and even these capsule shaped machines designed to reduce tobacco odor from clothing and hair from all the people who were just smoking inside the, uh, parlor. Oh, so like the United States, uh, in Japan, you can smoke in casinos. I don't Yeah. I mean, I guess up until recently, I don't know if there's new law. I don't know. I haven't recently. Such a weird thing to me. It's like, well, one vice is happening, so uh, let's just uh, like let's just accept all. Of yeah, the, exactly. Vices, yeah, right? like you know, you can take alcohol anywhere, you can smoke anywhere. It's, it's just a vice zone to the point where you need to develop like weird odor sucking capsules that you embed in the machine <laughs> to try to like reduce the consequences of it. It's pretty. It's pretty intense. Um, but in any event, um, the, the, the final thought to share is, according to one article that I read, the pachinko industry was also the first industry to use semiconductors on a mass scale, which oh. seems curious. So there's some funny stuff. Like there's some like marketing videos about pachinko on uh, the Sankyo webpage, which is Busajima's business, where it seems like they're pushing to try to like convince Western audiences that pachinko is like worth playing or competitive with western arcade games but i mean the the big the it big already sounds better to me than any gambling that i've heard of well um, you, you would think that but as it happens <laughs> as it happens the the industry's been on the decline for the last couple of decades so the number of players has fallen by two-thirds since 1995 Ooh. one third less players since 2005 and Online gambling? Is that why? I don't know. I think... It's got to be. Maybe. Parlors are increasingly trying to attract 
younger players, um, and 177 companies managing pachinko parlors uh, folded in 2017. Hmm. Um, Add to that the fact that there is anti-addiction regulation that may be passed in the near future in Japan, which would like further jeopardize the, the future of the industry. You know, it, it's difficult to imagine that the next two or three decades, given all of the technological developments that we have on our hands, it's difficult to imagine that um, Pachinko is going to be as popular or as profitable as it was during Busajima's lifetime. Well, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I'm a little skeptical of that argument. Uh, you know, like I said, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the ball bearing. I think there's a, there's a lot to say for tactility. Right? <laughs> I'm I, just saying. It's, like, it's, it's going to come back. <laughs> ball bearing. Pinball come... is going to make a comeback. <laughs> okay. People are going to get sick of not feeling the vibration of the machine. <laughs> you may be right. I'm just saying, like, the trend has been down. It's been a downward trend for the last couple of decades. So we'll see where it goes. I mean, I think for the purposes of our discussion here and the podcast, the, the, the big question is sort of like, what is the infrastructural role that gambling plays in our society or on the planet? And that is, that's weird. You know, that's a weird question to ask because, I mean, at that level, you sort of have to go and really start to think about, what is it about human beings at their core that's excited about the possibility of risk? I don't know. I mean, I am definitely the wrong person to ask because I've never been interested at all in gambling. Uh, I'm not also. I'm also not interested in extreme sports like that kind of risk. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess there are certain kinds of risk that uh, risky behaviors that I've engaged in or whatever. But like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, like I, I think that you have to like money uh, a lot to to like. In other words, like, uh, I don't. Yeah, I guess I don't get it. It's like. I could, I can understand like the risk involved in a lot of things and like why the risk would be fun. And like, I could totally understand jumping out of a plane definitely makes sense to me, right? Like it's a human, it's an experience that, uh, is unusual and it's risky and there's a sort of confrontation with your own mortality in a way, but like, you know, like risking, um, this is money. low level risk too. It's this is not like it high is. stakes gambling, but it adds up and people. I don't even. I mean, that makes gambling worse for me. Like, I, I it can be fun to like pop a quarter into a machine and see what happens, but like, I don't know. Maybe it's because like, uh, I I don't have expendable income. <laughs> like, I I just can't get my head around. Ah, I'm just gonna I'm gonna lay down a whole bunch of money at, uh, at a gambling place and and see what happens and maybe I'll lose it all. Like, I, I just, I don't know. feels like the wrong kind. It's not a productive anxiety for me uh, in any way. But it's uh, an, en- it's an engine for a, like a hugely profitable industry. So there's something that I know. you're missing. People love it. I, I know. Yeah. I know. That's why I'm saying I'm the wrong person to ask. I, I just like, I don't like, I don't like betting money with friends. Uh, that like, that's a, that is oh, just uncomfortable for me like i don't like it at all like, i don't i don't like playing poker for money i've done it like 
three times in my life, maybe, and it's been horrible every time. <laughs> uh, what? Do you get angry at people or are you just like- No, 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 no. It just feels weird to owe a friend money because uh, you played a game worse than them or something. Like, I don't, it just is so weird. I, like, I, don't, I don't understand what's entertaining about it, like, especially in games of chance because like, you're not even like, – okay, uh, I could understand like uh, liking to, say, play basketball or football well and get paid money for it because then there's like a – Oh, I'm improving myself so that I do better at it and and produce more money for myself. When you're gambling, you're just you're just placing a bet on a random thing. Like you play <laughs> roulette, and it's like I don't under like what's entertaining about that. Like it either the ball falls in the right hole or it falls in a different hole, and <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it. You yeah. can't influence it in any way. So you're not even doing anything. You're just like a spectator. I guess that's what it is. It's not like in the end, gambling is non-participatory. Like when you're just like playing playing poker or something, like it is. It's different, right? Like, um, but the the reason like I've never been interested in poker is because there's the, it feels like there's too much randomness to it. Yeah, of course you're playing other people, right? And and I think that people who understand the game better than I do like argue that it's not particularly random. But in the last instance, it does matter what cards you're dealt, right? Like it does like there like the the fundamental structure of poker is randomness, and. Uh, I don't know. I get. I just. I, I. I guess the moral of the story is that we don't have anything interesting to say about gambling. <laughs> we maybe have, <laughs> have some interesting. Oh things yeah, to say I mean, we kind of got just, away from the. I don't know. My my theory is that you have to believe in God to like gambling, right? Like because the, or you have to believe in some sort of supernatural structure that's guiding your fate. Hmm. Uh, otherwise, it's just like the random chaos of atoms running into one another and like just, i don't get that like what's entertaining about that yeah yeah so kenio busajima there he is may he rest in peace i don't know what else to say about him i got one last thing that our discussion about ball be- i'm stuck on ball bearings but like uh i didn't bring this up when we were talking about spengler because it didn't really fit in anywhere but he was obsessed with these little uh shapes like little um, you know that game Tangrams, you know, like No, uh, I have not that? no. No. Uh, uh it's like I don't know. He so his official portrait for UNC, uh, it has him with a bunch of these little shapes. It's like the size of a Rubik's cube, but it's just the scaffolding of a cube. Okay. And there's another one that's like a pyramid. Um, I don't know, it makes you think he's in some cult or something, but he he just liked these like little geometric shapes. And and uh, and then we like theorize that uh, Busajima is obsessed with tiny spheres. <laughs> I wonder, like one one sort of thing, and maybe this probably won't be in the show, but like maybe it's something to just sort of like think about. Like, does every billionaire have a rosebud, right? Like, does, does everyone have like a thing <laughs> that that they're like inexplicably attached? That is to? really an interesting question. Yeah, yeah let's. I think. Maybe look for their rosebuds. Yeah, I think we should look for their rosebuds. At least, like, you know, theorize. Yeah. So the argument for today is Busajima's rosebud is ball bearings. Yeah, or in golf balls. Just like any any tiny balls. (laughs) 
Can that be the title of the episode, Little Boxes, Little Balls? <laughs> if we want to. <laughs> yeah, let's make that. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Great. So in preparation for the next episode, we need to decide which billionaires we are going to research. And to do that, we use our billionaire roulette wheel. I'm going to go ahead and give it a spin right now. Give it a spin. Ooh, and it landed on... Vinod Kozla of Sun Microsystems, a co-founder, creator of Java and NFS Systems. Well, it'll be fun to talk about Java. Oh, he's now a venture capitalist, of course. Okay. Uh, it'll be fun to talk about Java, though. Um, Who's the other one? The other one. Let me uh, give it another. Well, I'm not going to give it another spin. Uh, we'll just spin it in our minds. And Patrick Ryan. Aon Corporation, founder, retired. Oh, an insurance guy. Well, there's bound to be a well, bunch of insurance no guys from time are. to time. Uh, you know, like we're going to have insurance people. Uh, we're going to have bankers. And so we're going to have to figure out creative ways to approach this. Maybe it's an interesting kind of insurance. Uh, who knows? Who knows? Okay, so we got our work cut out for us to try to figure out what these people are doing and how they're dominating us. Um, Wait, but we didn't we'll decide who has who. Who do you want? You want Patrick Ryan or you want... Uh, I'll take Patrick Ryan. All right. I'll take Patrick Ryan. Any final words, Chad? Uh, no. Uh, that's all, all I got for today. Okay. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye.